Well, welcome to the City Temple live stream. Today's sermon is just a part of our entire service, and if you would like to join us for the entirety of the service via Zoom, please email us at info at city-temple.com. We are delighted and honored that Pastor Rod will bring the Word of God to us today. And, of course, you can always join us in person as well because we're back to in-person worship here at City Temple, and so you're welcome to come. And if you need more information for that, uh, just drop us a note. Uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 1 again today. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse... Um, Actually, we're going to start with verse 12. I said starting with verse 15, but we'll start with verse 12 and then go down to the end of the chapter. Before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is trustworthy and true, and I pray that you would speak it into our hearts and minds this day in the power of your Holy Spirit. And let your Holy Spirit rest on me to bring your word to your people today, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For, quote, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward too Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. 
and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. So you can hear in my voice, and, and most people know uh, what I went through, uh, having come down with COVID uh, last December, spending 71 days in the hospital, losing about 50% of my muscle mass uh, during that time, uh, being in a position where uh, I couldn't walk, I couldn't stand, I couldn't take care of myself. I would laugh at myself all the time because initially I'd be lying in the hospital bed and you know they got the, the tray that comes over your bed, uh, that little table, and I'd want to get something on the table and I'd reach for it and as soon as I'd stretch out my hand, my hand would just drop to the table. And I kept laughing. I said, what's going on? You know, has, has gravity increased since I've been sick? And it, I'm pretty dense on these things. It took me a few times of that happening before I realized, oh, that's because I can't hold my arm up anymore. Uh, you know, so going through all of that and, and obviously through the journey of recovery and, and struggling with uh, my voice now, and uh, just seeing what the Lord is doing. You know, how do I make sense of all of this? Because I'm not the only person that's gone through a difficult time in their lives. Uh, in fact, I've gone through quite a few difficult times, but I'm not the only person who's gone through a lot of difficult times. Not by any long shot. So how do you make sense of that? What do you do when you're going through a difficult time? How do you make sense of it? How do you understand What's happened to you? How do you understand what's going on? How do you understand where God is in all of this? Because it's often through difficult times that so many people sadly lose their faith in God. And they lose their faith in God because they don't do something that I'm about to tell you what you need to do. But how do I make sense of all of this? Well, for me, I was there in the hospital and, uh, and when I could start to be conscious again and wasn't having deliriums about being kidnapped to uh, South Africa, which is another story in its, itself, uh, you know, I was asking the Lord, okay, Lord, what's going on? And you know what? There was silence. <laughs> and, you know, I waited a couple days. Okay, Lord, what's going on? Still silence. And after several days, finally the Lord spoke a verse into my mind. And the verse was, it's from Luke, Satan, and it's what Jesus said to Peter, Satan demanded to have you to sift you like wheat. And all of a sudden, I had some understanding. I had a sense of what happened to me, and where it all fits in the grand scheme of things. Now, by the way, that's something you don't want to have God say to you, especially beforehand. Thankfully for me, it was afterwards. But, you know, for Peter, it was before his sifting. And, uh, but what I did was I was anchoring my story, the story of what was happening to me, in the story of God's people, which is called 
the Bible. I anchored my story there. By the way, I anchored my prayer times there. It was interesting to me that just before I got sick, I was going through the Psalms, and I like to pray the Psalms, and uh, I usually try to read a Psalm just about every day. But I was on Psalm 71. And if you've not read it, uh, it's a great Psalm, especially if you have gray hair. Because it says, Lord, when my hair is gray and my strength is gone, don't reject me. And that was my prayer. And actually, that's continued to be my prayer. And ever since I've been awake uh, and, and got back to my Bible and realized that's where I was, I've been staying in Psalm 71. I'm still in Psalm 71. I'm, I'm praying it. You know, you who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. So my story is enfolded in the story of God's people. By the way, that's what was the disciples were doing there in Acts chapter 1. Now we sometimes lose sight of, remember what they've all been through. In the last 40 days or so, they had had a high point, let's say go back to the last 50 days, they had the high point of coming into Jerusalem, and then everything went pear-shaped, as they say, and, uh, and all of these guys that said, Jesus, we're with you, one of them betrayed him, one of them denied him, uh, and uh, let's see, that's, that's down to 10. Nine of them ran away, and there was only one, John, that was faithful at the cross and hung out with him. You know, and so all these guys must have been ashamed because they had run away. And then they started getting this word from some really crazy women who had gone to the tomb on a Sunday morning and that Jesus is alive. What's going on? Then Jesus appears to them and uh, teaches them about the kingdom. They still don't get it because as we saw last week, they say, okay, Jesus, is it time for you to kick some Roman backside, get them out, raise up a big kingdom, an army? And, uh, and Jesus says, oy vey, guys, you don't know the timing, you know? And, so, and then they see him go up in the air, and that's before there were planes, you know? It was a, and, then, and then you get him here, and I can't help but read this text and think of the old joke about the, you know, what car, what what car brand do the disciples go for? And that's Honda. Why can you say Honda? Because they all went with one accord. So that's what the text says there, right? And so, sorry, I just can't, I can't resist. I'm like an, an old grandpa that's stuck on repeat. But uh, uh, anyway, so, so they, they go through that, and they're saying, okay, what we've been through here, Judas, you know, he was one of us. He was hanging with us, you know, and he, he's gone. So we were 12, now we're 11. What's, what's go, what do we do? How do we make sense of all of this? How do we understand what's happened, and especially now because Jesus, he's gone up in the air, and we're here hanging out and trying to get a grip on what's happening with our lives. And what do they do? Peter gets up, and where does he go? He goes to the Bible, and he says, hey guys, we shouldn't be too upset about this, because when you look at the text of the scripture, you can see how God 
told us what was going to happen. There, when he said, uh, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it. I mean, that's, you know, that's telling us that there's a real betrayer here. That was Judas. And, well, then what do we do about it? Do we just go on as the 11 uh, or what? And, well, no, it, it also says in the Psalms, let another take his office. So that means we need to have, you know, find out who, is go- who it's going to be. And notice how they use their wisdom. They said, okay, it's got to be somebody who's been with us from the beginning. There were more than just the 12 that had been hanging around. It's got to be someone who's been with us from the beginning, uh, who's seen the resurrection. Okay, here's two guys. You can imagine, you know, there's 120 of them, so they're trying to pick, and maybe it's a bit of a popularity contest. They get to this, and then they say, okay, how are we going to pick between the two? I guess we could have them fight, you know, do a little mud wrestling or something like that, duke it out a bit. But they said, no, let's not do that. Uh, you know, let, let's, let's instead, let's draw lots. And so God, you know, guide this process, and they basically gamble, you know. But uh, whoever picks the short straw gets to die a horrible death at some point in time in the future as a martyr. And that was the outcome uh, for, for all of them except for John, who they tried to boil in oil. They couldn't kill him that way. So finally, John's the only one dies of old age of the group. But the point is, for all of this, they anchored themselves in the Bible. They anchored themselves, their experience, in the Scripture. Now, when I say the Scripture, or I say the Bible, I'm talking about the same thing. Scripture just means that which has been written, and the Bible is the word we generally refer to. Uh, It just means book, and it's this book of books that I'm preaching from today. And the Bible is essentially the story of God's relationship with us as human beings, how he has enfolded himself in this world that he created so that our story and his story is irrevocably interlinked. And that's what the Bible is telling us. It's a collection of stories. Now, by saying stories doesn't mean they're not true, doesn't mean they're not historically accurate. They are. But it's a collection of stories, a collection of narratives that help us to make sense of the world that we live in and to know what God is doing and is going to do in our world. And as such, it is a story that must be fulfilled. You see, the ending of the story has been written and it will not be changed. The ending of the story has been written and it will not be changed. Now, so often people misuse the Bible, especially Christians. I mean, sometimes I I see Christians that try to look at the Bible as some kind of textbook a theology text. And uh, that would be a bit like me looking at my relationship with Karen from, from a textbook kind of perspective. You know, to say, oh, okay, Karen cooks for me because in my textbook it says wives are supposed to cook and uh, husbands are supposed to eat. And 
you know, and all of this, and, and this is the way that a wife is supposed to act, and this is the way, you know, I, and that's not our relationship. Our relationship is living and active. Our relationship is something that changes me continually, and it's no wonder that the writer to the Hebrew says, the word of God is living and active. You know, so it's not a textbook. It's also not a compendium of wisdom. Yeah, you got Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, has a lot of wisdom in there, but the Bible spends a lot of time showing you the foolishness of God's people, not the wisdom of God's people. You know, one of the reasons I trust the, the Bible is it shows people like Jacob for who they are. You know, Jacob was a bit of a deceiver. And it doesn't try to sugarcoat or whitewash the reality of who Jacob was. Or you got somebody like Samson. I was talking with somebody who, uh, you know, had, had, had had a prophetic word about being like a Samson. And I told the person, I said, yeah, that's great, but don't be the bad stuff that Samson was. You know, because he fooled around a bit. He, uh, uh, he betrayed his vows and ended up uh, killing himself and killing a bunch of other people with him. Uh, you could almost say he was one of the original suicide bombers. Now that's kind of hard. You know, and certainly, if the Bible was just an easy read, a story that's been whitewashed, something that's made up, certainly we would have cut that bit out. I mean, let, you, let me tell you, there's part, if I tell you the story of my life, there are bits I'm going to cut out. You know, so it's not just a compendium of wisdom. It's not something that we turn to, to proof text, how we should live or what we should do. And let's remember my favorite story about the guy who opens the Bible and says, God, what do I need to do with my life? Puts his finger down and it says, and Judas went out and hanged himself. You can't do that. You don't use the Bible that way. Uh, it's not a group of memes that you can easily just pop up on the internet. Now, I'm not against the memes that use the Bible, mind you. But it's more than that. And if you don't read these verses in context, you'll very quickly take them out of context. Like when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, a lot of times we say, oh, that must mean I can run a marathon, or that must mean I can, you know, leap tall buildings with a single bound or something like that. And actually, the context is Paul is in prison. And he's saying, I'm going to endure the stuff that I'm enduring because Jesus is the one who gives me strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we need to remember that this book of stories has authority in our lives. It's not just any book. You know, it has authority because it's breathed out by God. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. That means that somehow when human beings were writing the, the, the texts that are in this book, they were guided by the Spirit of God in such a way that what they were writing accurately represented what God wanted them to say, even within their own culture, even within their own personality. It has authority 
because it's historical. In particular, it's the historical testimony about Jesus. And it gives us a good history, a history that is grounded in reality, not something that somebody has made up, like a whole lot of the television programs you get today. You know, like you get The Crown. And let me tell you, uh, The Crown, apparently from some people, I've not watched it really, is very interesting, but a lot of it's just made up, loosely based on historical reality. The Bible is not loosely based on historical reality. It is historical reality. But the Bible also has authority because the Holy Spirit continually speaks to us through it. We can pick it up and open it and read it. And it's like, oh God, why are you saying that? Oh boy. And, and by the way, if you want to know if the Bible is really speaking to you, it should convict you just about as often as it convinces you to do something. There are many times I pick up the Bible and I say, oh man, I just read that. I need to check my life here. I'm not doing this like I should be doing this. And the Bible we know has authority because it's a lived reality in the lives of people. History is filled with people who have read this text and saw it lived out in their lives all the way from start to finish, all the way to the end. And it's lived out. Now, just because it's lived out, you know, a good poem can be lived out in a lot of people's lives. It builds on those other things. It's something that God has breathed. It's something that's historically based. It's something through which the Holy Spirit speaks to us, and it has a positive impact in the lives of people. And so that's why people like Peter and the, ele the other 11 at the time in the 120, they turned to it to make sense of their lives is why I turned to it in the hospital bed to understand what God was doing. It's why we must continually go back to the Bible and immerse ourselves in Scripture because it's through then that we connect ourselves with reality and keep ourselves connected with reality. When COVID first started becoming a pandemic, I wasn't panicked because I knew I could go to the text of the scripture and put this whole experience in a historical context. So I knew that it's what God predicted was going to happen. Jesus said there were going to be pestilences. But at the same time, I knew that it wasn't the end times. I knew that this world wasn't over because I looked at the scripture and I saw how the Bible was speaking. The Bible is immersed in God's reality. The scripture must be fulfilled. Not all these other stories that the world wants to tell you. Not all these other stories. But the Bible is the one. And if we want to reconnect with reality, as we must do in this time we're living in, then we must reconnect with the Bible. So how does the Bible function in our lives when we're connecting to it, when we're continually connecting ourselves to it, when we connect to reality through it, 
How does it function? I've got three words for you. The first one, uh, I kind of have to laugh at a little bit because of the image that was in my mind. The first word is the Bible functions kind of like a girdle. And when I first heard that word come into my mind, uh, the, the image that I had was myself wearing one of those old style girdles, you know, kind of goes from about this high down there. And, uh, and I was having to wear the girdles because, you know, there were bulgy bits everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's kind of holding everything into place. Uh, and that, that kind of came into my mind. I was just laughing. I said, oh, how am I going to explain that? Well, I just did. Uh, and, uh, and in a sense, the Bible does function like that. It kind of holds together, holds us together in the midst of the messiness of life. It becomes a support that undergirds us. But then I actually looked at the scriptures as well, and the whole idea of a girdle is a very powerful, very powerful concept. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus uses the idea of putting on a girdle, although you don't get that so much in the English translation. He uses the idea of putting on a girdle as a symbol of preparation and readiness for service. And so when we're immersed in the Bible, what it does, it helps to prepare us and get us ready to serve, to live effectively in the world today, which is what our service as Christians is all about. So it kind of holds us together in the messy times of life. It prepares us for service. And also you see in Ephesians chapter 6, when it comes to the armor of God, it's the girdle or the belt of truth. And the belt in, in Roman, uh, in Roman uh, uh, armor is what you hung all of your other weapons and all of your other armor on. So when you have the Bible, uh, you immerse yourself in the Bible, you become immersed into the truth of God. And it anchors us, and it anchors our faith, and it anchors our minds. How many times do we lose the battle for our minds because we're not anchored in our thinking in what the Bible is saying. How many times? You know, I see that all the time in people that, uh, that are married and they fall in love with somebody outside of their relationship and they end up having an affair and leave that person. I'm talking about Christians here who have done that. Why do they do that? Because they're not immersed in the Bible. They're not anchoring their life on the Bible, because if you anchored your life on the Bible, you'd immediately realize that this attraction that I'm feeling, it's not God. It's not right. Or how many Christians that, uh, you know, they, they, they walk away from the Lord because they feel like, oh, God's going to reject me. He can't possibly love me. Well, get in the Word. Get in the Bible. You've got to anchor the battle for your mind on the truth of God's word. So the first thing, it's a girdle. And that's what was happening to these guys in the upper room. It was helping to hold them together and give them uh, a way to proceed and to work and to understand. The Bible, secondly, functions as a grid for us. Notice all these have start with G. I'm being cute. 
but it helps you to remember. Girdle and then grid. Now what's a grid? A grid is a framework that we build on. It shows us what's really real and what's really true. And the Bible does that. It gives us a framework by which we can understand reality. We can build our lives on the framework knowing that if we do, we're building our lives on reality, not on what's fake. Another aspect of grid, uh, and we don't get this so much anymore because very few of us actually use printed maps anymore. But a grid, grid, a map has grid lines on it. And you can understand where you are by finding your place in the grid. And so the Bible as a grid is also helps us to define our location in the map of our lives. And so many times we want to quit. So many times we want to give up, forgetting that our story is not fully written yet. Your story's not over until you're dead, and then even then your story's not over. There are some people that have uh, uh, an impact far beyond their lifetime. I don't know if anybody's ever used the devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. It's a great devotional written by Oswald Chambers, but actually it wasn't written by Oswald Chambers because he died before it was written. It was compiled by his wife who took notes. That's where I knew, by the way, if I died in the hospital, that I'd be okay because Karen has taken notes on just about every sermon that I've ever preached. And so she could probably, you know, write a number of books and attribute them to me. And so like I'm writing from the grave. But that's what Oswald Chambers did. Now, the grid shows us where we are on the map, and it should always tell you you're not at the end of your journey yet. You're still traveling through. There's a great song that's out right now. I'm thinking about singing it here. I think it's called The Detour. You can look it up on Spotify. But basically it asks the question, what if the detour is the road? Did you ever think about that? We kind of think, oh man, my life, I'm on a detour. And, and we get so upset because it feels like the direction of our lives are on a detour. But what if the detour is intended by God and is part, a vital part of the journey? There's been many journeys that we've taken that in, in the UK that had we not gone on the detour, we would have missed a beauty spot. And very seldom have we done a detour that's a dead end. It's happened, but not often. The Bible also serves as a grid in the sense that it's something that helps us to make sense of what we are seeing and hearing. It's something that gives us understanding. Uh, uh, we sometimes call this our worldview. But when I take the Bible as a grid and I overlay it with what's going on in our world, the Bible helps me understand what's going on in our world. And I try to sometimes have the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another. 
I can't remember who used to, one great preacher in the 1800s used to do that. I can't remember if it was Joseph Parker who was here or uh, uh, Spurgeon down uh, south of the river. But uh, anyway, we can take the Bible and it helps us make sense of what's happening on the evening news. Golly, don't watch the evening news just on its own. Because the evening news is filled with a lot of people who have no idea what they're doing and where they're going. And I see that all the time, from the politicians to the reporters. And the Bible gives us a sense of all of this. When we immerse ourselves in it, it will function as a grid. And then, of course, the Bible functions as a guide. That's our third thing, as a guide. It gives us direction, gives direction to our decision-making now while giving us hope for the future. So often we get caught out because we think, oh, this decision, this is going to determine my life. You know what? It's not. Now, some mistakes can really mess you up, but it doesn't determine the outcome. And if you want to think about that, think about Paul. I mean, here's Paul, the apostle. He starts out killing Christians. And yet, God didn't let that determine who he was going to be and what he was going to do. And you see that with a lot of the Bible characters. David, I mean, golly, the man really messed up a lot. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. These stories, they give me hope for the future in the decisions that I have to make on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, the Bible is not going to tell you a lot of things. It's not going to tell you what car to buy or what computer brand to buy uh, or not to buy. Uh, it's not going to tell you uh, what phone you should have. Uh, it's not going to tell you who you should marry, although it'll give you some ideas about the qualifications of the person you should marry, if you get married. Uh, so we have to be careful. And so how do we get around that, that notion of, you know, uh, not trying to find every decision exactly in the Bible? You get around it by immersing yourself in the story. When you know what's happened and you know what's going to happen, you can see your life in that context. And you can make decisions accordingly. It gives direction to our decision-making while giving us hope for the future that even if we make the wrong decision, doesn't mean it's game over for us. It also, as a guide, should lead us in our evaluations and assessments. How do we evaluate? the performance of a politician? How do we assess our business? Either the one that we're running or the one that we work for. How do we understand what, what is going on here? We look to the Bible. We look to the Bible. And if we're immersed in this story, it will help us in our evaluations and our assessments and it guides us, I think most of all in some respects, by keeping our story 
connected to the overarching story of God's holy history. I love the German word, by the way, here, Heilsgeschichte. Isn't that a great word, Heilsgeschichte? I wish we had it in English, uh, but it basically means holy history. And it's God's history, because you know, God's holy history doesn't often find its way in a history book. These people, I mean, for so long, look at David. Now for us, I mean, we grew up, uh, if you grew up in church, or if you heard the stories, if you're a Christian, you think, wow, David was this significant guy. David was this great king that was known by everybody, that had everything together. And you think, wow, this is, I mean, this guy, uh, he must be in any ancient history. And the truth is, do you know, that it was only about a decade ago that they found the first non-biblical historical evidence that David existed as king. So up until that time, there was no proof outside the Bible that David was even real. But of course, we know he was real. And by the way, that tells you not to discard or discredit what's in the book just because you don't have the evidence that you'd like to have. It may be the evidence is there, but it hasn't been found yet. <clears throat> so it guides us by keeping our story connected to God's holy history, not the history of history books, not the history on Wikipedia, not the history on YouTube, but the history of God, what he's done, who he is, how he interacts with his people, so that we remain anchored in the truth, so that our lives don't get tossed to and fro by all the junk that happens in our world. And that's the reality. So the Bible, if we immerse ourselves in it, it becomes our girdle, it becomes our, 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 uh, <laughs> I already forgot, grid and our guide, sorry. It's one of those things. The brain just hasn't caught up with the fact that I'm alive. Uh, so uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. So, so what do we do from here? I mean, how do we go forward? Well, we need to get to know the Bible as much as possible. Read it. Listen to it. Don't listen to people talking about it all the time. I find these daily devotions can be kind of nice, uh, but so often in these little daily devotion books, including like My Utmost for His Highest, that, that I mentioned and I would recommend to you, it has one verse of scripture and then four or five paragraphs from somebody else. That's good, but don't make that your primary Bible study. You need to be reading the Bible and listening to the Bible and listen to chunks of it. Not just a bit, but chunks of it. And now audio Bibles are available everywhere. Find a good one and listen to it or read it. And remember what Alexander Pope said. I know, most of you don't know Alexander Pope. Uh, he was a, uh, an English uh, literary critic and poet. And he said this, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. 
Now, you probably all heard that, but I'll, I'll keep going. A little knowledge is a drink, dangerous thing. Drink deep from the Pyrian spring, for shallow drafts intoxicate the brain, but drinking largely sobers us again. I tell you, there's, a lot of, there's even a lot of preachers out there that they've just taken a little bit of the Bible and it's like they've intoxicated in their minds because they think they know it all and they don't. And so what that says is we got to know the book as, as well as possible. It's a lifelong journey, by the way. It's not read it once and put it up on your shelf. And then another way to think about it is, I'd say, feast on the scripture. Now, what does that mean? Well, I want to I wanna think about that idea of eating uh, and eating the Bible. Thankfully, only Ezekiel was required to eat a scroll. Uh, uh, and that's probably good. Uh, there's a lot of fiber in this book, but it's a little tough on the outside, I think, with this leather. So I'm not talking about physically eating it. But think about this. Eat most of your meals at home. That's the first thing. Eat most of your meals at home. Now, if we want to have a healthy lifestyle, a healthy diet, we'll eat most of our actual food at home. We plan it out. We don't go to the chip shop all the time as much as we'd like to. In the same way, we need to know where God has called us to be as a church, your home church, and eat most of your meals at home. It's very, very difficult if you're eating your meals at home, but you're constantly watching what's happening on YouTube, or you're filling your mind with 10, 20, 30 other people, because eventually you're going to hear people tell you different things. And the more you hear, the less able you become to discern. The more you hear, the less able you become you, you are able, the less able you become to discern. So really knowing where your food's coming from, knowing the provenance of the meals you're eating is important, and the best way to do that, eat most of your meals at home. The second thing with that, eat with your family as much as possible. Don't eat alone all the time. If you eat alone, you are prone to being deceived. That's one of the reasons God's given us the church. Because without our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will get deceived. And that's true not only of people in general, that's especially true of leaders. One of the reasons why I love you guys so much. I preach the word to you, but you're not afraid to preach the word to me. To challenge me, to question things, helps keep me from being deceived. And I've seen a lot of leaders go down the path of deception because they didn't establish that kind of relationship. The third thing, so first one, eat most of your meals at your home church. Eat with your family as much as possible instead of just eating alone. Eating alone's okay, 
but just don't do it all the time. Then the third thing, enjoy eating out from time to time. You know, I'm not so arrogant to think that I can teach you everything you need to know about the Bible. If I told you that, you should leave because the Bible says there's error in everyone's teaching, except for Jesus. You know, so I'm not that arrogant. I, I encourage people to go to other churches from time to time, to check out other teachers uh, on YouTube or something like that. I mean, that's, that's fine, especially if you're eating most of your meals at home. Then the fourth thing here with feasting on the scripture, make sure you're eating a balanced diet. Don't snack around too much. A lot of times the problems with some of the memes is that they're taken out of context and it's like a little snack, but we really need to understand the scripture in context. Or when you, when you look at somebody preaching on YouTube, you don't know the story of that person's life. You don't know who they are. Hopefully everybody in this church at least knows a bit of who I am or knows somebody who knows who I am. In other words, who I am is not hidden. And after being here for almost 20 years, I tell you, I couldn't hide who I am for that long. You know, so you gotta make sure that you're getting a balanced diet. Don't snack around too much. Know the provenance of the food that you're ingesting and get the organic stuff. That's the Bible directly. It's like the organic. Don't let a lot of fertilizer be given to you. Because let me tell you, you have everything you need. If you've got a Bible, you love Jesus, you've surrendered your life to him, and the Holy Spirit is living in you, which he is, if you love Jesus and you've surrendered your life to him. You have everything you need to know everything you need to know about this book. Just having people around like me sometimes are helpful, sometimes it's more confusing. Hopefully, most of the time it's helpful. But this is the book. And we need to reconnect with reality in this crazy time we're living in. And we need to reconnect with reality by reconnecting with this book. In all that God reveals, this story that is in there. And we do that remembering that the scripture must be fulfilled. And that means it must be fulfilled as it's there, but it also must be fulfilled in your life as well if you're a follower of Jesus. The scripture must be fulfilled. God's promises will be fulfilled for you. The scripture must be fulfilled. This world does not determine the outcome of your life. Your circumstances do not determine the outcome of your life. What your parents said to you when you were growing up does not determine the outcome of your life. What your boss says to you does not determine the outcome of your life. What some college professor says to you does not determine the outcome of your life because the Bible, the scripture, God determines what is going to be the outcome of your life. And God has shown you, and the scripture must be fulfilled. 
Hallelujah. Amen. Father God, we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for linking our story with your story and the story of your people as revealed in your word. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to go deeper and deeper and deeper in your word. Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to us in the pages of scripture and reveal yourself in us as we are conformed more and more to your likeness. Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds that we might understand what we read. Enlighten our hearts that we might be connected emotionally to what we read. Enliven our wills that we might live according to what we read. Because it's your word to us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we love you and thank you for it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.